it might help to think of viral onslaughts such as the Delta and Omicron coronavirus variants as attacks of the mutants, because that's what they are, pathogens created by genetic mutations. Now, we've been pretty good at fending them off, but aside from getting more people vaccinated and boosted, can we do better? Can we use what we know about mutations to create a a more elegant and useful defense against coronavirus or even seasonal flu? That is, a single vaccine to fend off all variants. If so, I'm not throwing away that shot. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, how genetic mutations keep viruses circulating, intriguing theories about where the fast-moving Omicron variant came from, hint, a rodent may be involved, and surprising progress on the development of universal vaccines for coronavirus and flu. This episode is Attack of the Mutants. In the movies, genetic mutations are mostly a bad thing. They produce grotesque monsters, or mutants, with fearsome physical aberrations, like half-man, half-fly. It's unrelenting every day there. It changes. Every time I look in the mirror, it's someone different, someone hideous, repulsive. What happened? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. Indeed, genetic mutations are mistakes. They're errors in the sequence of amino acids that are produced when DNA or RNA replicate. And these copying errors are like a throw of the dice. They could produce mutations that are harmful, but they also might give an organism a lucky break, creating mutations beneficial to survival. Now, we see the consequences of billions of years of beneficial genetic mutations everywhere in creatures that have evolved to have wings or scales or venom or eyes. Well, the list goes on. Without genetic mutations creating new forms, we'd still be slime oozing over a deep-sea rock. Which would make it hard to watch the X-Men movies. They provide a twist on the mutation theme. It's beneficial mutations that provide the unique powers of these heroes. Mutation. It is the key to our evolution. It has enabled us to evolve from a single-celled organism into the dominant species on the planet. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years. But every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. If only mutated viruses brought about peace and justice. Alas, the mutations, known as variants, popping up in SARS-CoV-2 are upending lives. For example, the Delta variant spreads more than twice as quickly as the original strain. A new variant grabbed our attention when over 10 days in November 2021, the number of COVID cases in South Africa jumped from 400 a day to more than 2,000. Genetic sequencing revealed that many of the cases were caused by a variant known as B11529. We now know it by its Greek name, Omicron, and it is spreading faster than any variant seen so far. Omicron won't be the last variant we'll see or have to defend against. We're facing off against a mutating viral villain, so we need to think like one. So the question we're asking in this episode is, what sorts of mutations give this virus an advantage over our immune system's defenses? 
Seth, when I think about how it is that genetic errors crop up when DNA or RNA replicates, you know, I picture those medieval monks whose job it was to copy manuscripts by hand. Yeah, well, uh, it doesn't sound like the kind of job I'd like to have, sitting around with only a candle for illumination. And it was inevitable that they would introduce errors. These might be spelling mistakes, or perhaps they would skip over a word or two. You could understand how that would happen. Yeah, undoubtedly they made errors because they're copying long manuscripts. I mean, imagine sitting down. Your job for the next N months, whatever it is, is to make one copy of this here Bible. And of course, you're going to make mistakes. One, one thing that they didn't have that really would have helped was some way to correct errors because they didn't have, you know, whiteout and they couldn't just uh, hit the backspace and, and try it again. <laughs> now, fortunately, we do have a kind of eraser in our DNA. We have enzymes that proofread our DNA when it's copied, and they're really good at it. So when you get a scratch or something and you need to make a new cell and your DNA is replicating, these enzymes correct most mistakes so that there are hardly any mistakes at all. And occasionally mistakes do happen, so the system isn't perfect, but it is very good. The system is different in an RNA virus like SARS-CoV-2. It stores genetic information in a strand of RNA instead of DNA, but it still has to copy that RNA. And like those all-too-human monks, it's prone to making errors. Turns out that coronaviruses actually do have a little proofreading function. They have some enzymes that, that go back and check. It's very inefficient. So viruses make a lot of mistakes. And their enzymes that copy and replicate their RNA probably make at least one mistake per every time they replicate. Hi, I'm Robert Gary. I'm a professor of microbiology at uh, Tulane University School of Medicine here in New Orleans. Well, clearly the viruses also have some sort of proofreading, but it's not very good. It's, they're not paying them enough for something. Now, the vast number of copying errors in a virus don't help it. Those variants are erased from evolution's history books, you could say. But you might be surprised to learn that scientists detect a new SARS-CoV-2 variant about every week. Yeah, but how many of those actually, you know, make it into the population and get a, get a Greek letter as their name? Most of those variants just fizzle out. Now, scientists do keep an eye on those that stick around, though. And Seth, have you heard of the variants Epsilon or the variant Iota? Uh, I haven't heard one Iota about the variant Iota. <laughs> These variants, they also include ETA and Kappa and some others, are among the variants that the WHO calls variants of interest. But you didn't hear about some of these variants of interest, Seth, one iota, because they never made it to the second group of variants that make health officials sit up. Those are variants of concern. Yeah, that, that happens when that variant of interest starts to take off and infect a, a lot of different people. And, you know, the ones you mentioned, like IOTA, those those were there. And, uh, you know, even you can put variants like, you know, beta and gamma into that category where, you know, we saw the viruses spreading in, in certain countries, certain places in the world, but they didn't become worldwide and they didn't displace the variants that were already growing. You know, beta was at one time a variant of concern, but it got kicked out by alpha and subsequently by delta. So that's how you determine whether it's a variant of interest or of concern by its real world behavior. It's not by looking at the mutations of the proteins and then assigning it a category. It's just watching what it does. That's right. 
So today, WHO's Technical Advisory Group on Virus Evolution met to discuss the variant B11529, to discuss what we understand about this variant and if it should be classified as a variant of interest or a variant of concern. Based upon the information that we have, particularly from South Africa, um, they have advised WHO that this variant should be classified as a variant of concern. So today, we are announcing B11529 as a variant of concern named Omicron. So, you know, these guys are being evaluated on one thing. How successful are they in human hosts, right? I mean, I think that this would have interested Charles Darwin very much, uh, but it wouldn't surprise him in the sense that he knew that species made mistakes when they reproduced, right? And it was those mistakes, most of which were bad, just like for these viruses, that led to the evolution of species, so that they might become a, a different species, or they might develop, you know, better hearing or whatever it was going to. But he didn't know about DNA. Obviously, he didn't know about DNA or RNA. He didn't know that. Okay, but we do, and not only that, we can, in fact, tell you what that blueprint is in detail. You know, the molecular structure of that blueprint. So that gives us a tremendous advantage. You know, we don't have to wonder, gosh, is this virus the same as its predecessor? You just sequence it, and you could tell. And the genetic sequence of Omicron has revealed that it has many more mutations than previous strains. Now, the number of mutations itself is not usually a red flag. Of course, when you see a, a new variant come up with, that has 50 mutations all at once, that, that is concerning. South African scientists were the first to sequence Omicron. Robert Gary was part of the team that used that sequence to determine that Omicron has a whopping 36 mutations on its spike protein alone. For comparison, Delta has 18 mutations on its spike. It's those spike proteins on the ends of those little stems that actually attach to your cells and then let the virus inject its genetic material into your cell and make you sick. So what Omicron did and what Delta has done really is to actually change some of the uh, amino acids in the spike protein so that the antibodies don't bind there. It sounds like then from the perspective of the of the virus and not to, not that a virus has perspective or even, you know, will, but it is trying to get around the immune system. And by mutating the spike protein, it may be able to defy those defenses. Absolutely. That's what we call immune escape. And, you know, that was what was so concerning about Omicron to start. Up until this point, you know, immune escape hadn't been a, such a big deal for these variants of concern. I mean, Delta does have a few changes that, that make it escape the immune system a bit, but, you know, Omicron really took that to the next level where there are probably, you know, whole clusters of mutations that it has put on its spike that basically are there just to resist our immune system. But just because you're a variant with spike protein mutations doesn't mean that you accomplish immune escape. For example, there was a variant that popped up in early 2021. It was called C12. Its spike protein had what scientists described as a constellation of mutations, which sounds alarming, except they didn't help C12 spread very far. The variant didn't even stick around long enough to get a Greek name, and it's probably extinct by now. But as a side note, it is amazing how fast scientists can sequence variants. The South African team did it in days. Dr. Gary compares that with his experience in 2014 with a team that churned out one of the first viral sequences in real time. 
was during the West African Ebola outbreak. It was kind of a revolutionary at the time. Nobody expected that you'd be able to get a sequence and publish it and share it with scientists. You know, at that time, it was like two months. And that, that seems like an incredibly long time now. But, you know, back in, in 2014, that was like unheard of. Scientists say that where mutations land on the spike protein hold the secrets to whether the virus is more transmissible or creates more severe illness. Again, it comes down to location. So picture that spiky protein. Each spike has three areas that are key to helping the virus's efficiency. They are the receptor binding area, something called the N-terminal domain, and one that scientists especially zero in on. It's called the furin cleavage site. Furin is an enzyme that we carry throughout our body. I haven't heard of the furin cleavage site. It sounds like a, an archaeological dig. <laughs> so the furin cleavage site is a bit on the spike protein. It's that famous protein that sticks out on the surface of the virus. It's what you make antibodies to. But that spike has to be activated. And the activation process involves clipping the protein into two segments, two subunits. The furin enzyme is a protease, and that means it an enzyme that cuts the protein. Because if the spike protein isn't cleaved, then it can't do the business that it sets out to do, which is to fuse the viral envelope with the host cell membrane. So the furin cleavage step is really a, an important step in the virus. And the more efficiently that's done, the more efficiently the virus can replicate. So if you start to see mutations in and around that furin cleavage site, you can start to say, okay, the, the virus may have a leg up on some of these other, other variants. And, and Omicron has three mutations in that general area. So it sounds to me like uh, the mutation here is necessary in order to give that spike protein a better crowbar to get into my cells. It may also be the key to more severe illness. Dr. Gary thinks that the furin cleavage site is likely one of the reasons that SARS-CoV-2 can burrow into lungs and make people very sick. But even more, the mutation that introduced it into a bat coronavirus may be what kicked everything off. Some of the bat viruses that SARS-CoV-2 came from don't have a furin cleavage site, and they're not very efficient pathogens, at least in people. They don't spread to multiple organs, and so they're not, they're not very pathogenic. And, and once this virus picked up probably that one mutation, the most important one that gave it its furin cleavage site, I mean, it was inevitable that it was eventually going to show up uh, in a person. It was basically destined at that point to become a pandemic virus. Okay, so this obviously really, really uh, upped the capabilities of these viruses. I mean, sounds like it was this mutation that turned a problem for bats into a problem for us. But one unanswered mystery lingers about Omicron, says Dr. Gary. How is it that all of its mutations appeared at the same time? But it's a big question. I mean, seeing 50 mutations pop up all at once, we don't have really a good notion about how that could happen. It's been seen before in some people that have had either on immune suppressive drugs or or conditions that, you know, cause their immune system to not work as well. In fact, in those patients, those immune suppressed patients, we have seen 
mutations accumulate more than you know more than one never never up to 50 like with omicron but you know dozens you know have been seen before so this is a plausible way that omicron could have arisen and the reason why a virus can replicate continue to replicate in a immunocompromised individual is that there is not a robust immune system there to stop it so it can continue testing different things out. Can a variant then arise in a single individual, in a single immunocompromised individual? Is that one of the theories? That's one of the theories that, you know, all these 50 mutations came in at once. Now, there's some complicating things happening now. There are actually two variations of Omicron now. We have the B1 and the B2 that have different sets of mutations. Uh, they're overlapping, but, you know, the virus has either diverged from some common ancestor and then picked up, you know, different sets of mutations in other places in their genome, or it's a lot more complicated than we understand, and we're missing a lot of the evolutionary history of these variants. Okay, so you're saying there are two variants of Omicron. Um, this is this is news to me and maybe to many of our listeners. Yeah. Why isn't it a, another variant? Why haven't we moved down the Greek alphabet with this second variant of Omicron? Well, because, you know, they do have these overlapping mutations and some of the overlapping mutations are basically what defines the virus as Omicron. So people that make the numbers, that do the nomenclature, decided that these were two variants of the same variant of concern. Well, quite interesting, Molly, that there are two sort of uh, flavors of the Omicron variant, in fact. And, you know, first thought is, well, are the differences significant? right? Are they consequential? Or are they just like uh, the color of my car? It doesn't really affect its performance very much. But, you know, all this discussion certainly just blows me away because of the efficacy, if you will, the effectiveness, the efficiency of having some little bit of RNA called a virus change itself very quickly. Robert Gary says that one theory is that Omicron picked up its mutations in an immunocompromised individual. But he has another theory about where the variant arose. So the fact that there was such a dramatic change, so many mutations, led some of us to think that you know the virus may have been evolving in some other species. Coming up, how coronavirus variants jump between species. This episode of Big Picture Science is Attack of the Mutants. The Omicron variant is on the move. Scientists describe its spread as surging. Its heightened transmissibility is due to a whopping 50 mutations, more than we've seen in other variants, and the presence of some of those mutations on the virus's spike protein. But here's a puzzling question. How did Omicron develop all those mutations at once? Well, one theory, Robert Gary said, was that they arose in an immunocompromised individual. Later in the show, we'll hear how scientists are using their knowledge of coronavirus mutations to develop a single vaccine to defeat them all. But first, the Tulane microbiologist describes a second theory about how, or rather where, 
this cluster of Omicron mutations arose. It shows us just how adaptive this virus is. Well, the alternative theory about the evolution, or one of the alternative theories about the evolution of Omicron in particular, is that it evolved in another animal species. And by that, we mean, we should say, a non-human animal species, because, of course, humans are animals. Um, Bob, what is this theory? Can you give us that in broad strokes? Yeah. So, you know, we have these two variants of Omicron, you know, and, and the, the when we look at the phylogenetic tree, the family history, if you will, of the Omicron variant. It seems like it arose a long time ago, very early in the uh, pandemic, you know, a year or so ago, at least, maybe longer than that, you know, and people have been doing a lot of characterization of the SARS-CoV-2 variants. There have been 6 million genomic sequences made of SARS-CoV-2 viruses. And so we know a lot about how this virus has been evolving, but there are places on the planet where, you know, there hasn't been as much sequencing. And then thinking about places like Africa and, you know, places in the, in the East. So we don't know everything that's been going on with the evolution of the virus, but we know a lot. And so, you know, the fact that there was such a, a dramatic change, so many mutations, you know, that and that we don't see the intermediates in humans, at least, uh, led some of us. And, you know, I, I think this is a plausible explanation to think that, you know, the virus may have been evolving in some other species that we're not sequencing the virus from, from those. We know that SARS-CoV-2 can basically jump from one species to another without any problem at all. We, we've seen animals in zoos, gorillas and, you know, lions and tigers and, you know, otters, hippos. You cats and dogs. Cats too? and dogs. You can go through a, an incredible range of species. Most of them are carnivores, but, but it, it will basically jump from species to species with no problem whatsoever. And so there's been a thought, and, you know, I kicked this around with some of my virology colleagues. I think it's perfectly plausible that the virus, you know, what we call spilled back or you can call it reverse zoonosis, went into some other species. And then, you know, the similar kind of things happen. You get into another species and it's going to start to adapt. But, you know, animals have immune systems too. They're going to start to make immune responses to the virus. And, you know, who knows what goes on in other species. Maybe, you know, a chronic infection is uh, fairly common. I mean, one of the species we've seen the virus go into are deer, white-tailed deer. And, you know, it's been mostly done, the best study was done in Iowa, but we've seen deer infected in other states in the U.S. And it turns out that those deer may have had a chronic infection because the virus was sampled from their lymph nodes. And almost 100% of the deer were positive at some point, over 80% at least. And so that would seem to imply that they're not just being infected for a short period of time, that the deer are actually carrying the virus for a long time, which would be an ideal situation for mutations to accumulate like we see in Omicron. So in that case, the, the virus is living within the deer and it doesn't seem to be making the deer sick. Is that right? I think people that have, have been hunting and, you know, looking at the deer don't seem to see a whole lot of respiratory illness in the, in the animals. But, you know, I think that's going to take a more intense study. I mean, other animals do get sick. We've, we've seen a lion die, for example, an elderly lion, and gorillas have gotten very sick too. So, and even dogs and cats, I mean, you know, it's rare, but, you know, there have been some cats and other, you know, house cats that have gotten sick and died from it. 
I remember early in the pandemic, uh, the advice from uh, health practitioners and officials was be careful petting other people's, you know, cats and dogs, or at least wash your hands afterward. So to be clear, what you're describing here, Bob, sounds a lot like the origin of the the virus, that it, it started in a bat, we think, and then it may have jumped into an intermediate host and then into humans. But you're talking about a variant, that a variant may have jumped into another animal in what you call a reverse zoonosis. And then a new zoonosis, meaning it reinfected humans. Yeah. That's that's a lot of jumping around. That's um, a lot of jumping around, and it, you know, it hid somewhere. But you have a, a an animal candidate. A case could be made that it was a rodent. Yeah, uh, a lot of the mutations that are in Omicron have been seen when we try to pass the virus in in rodents in laboratory mice. It turns out that there was one mutation in particular. I'll call it by its name, N501Y, that actually, that mutation actually gave the virus early on the ability to replicate in rodents. It's in Delta, but that actually expands the host range of the virus. It gives it the ability to replicate in rodents and other, other animal species that it didn't have before, things like mink, places like Norway. So, uh, it, it's a real thing. This is a what we call a pantropic virus. It, it will jump species without any problem. It, it's not so unusual, though, for a pandemic virus to have that property. It's almost a requirement in some sense. I mean, we, we know that viruses like rabies that jump species a lot will replicate basically in, in every mammalian species that we know about. Um, you know, viruses like influenza come to us from birds uh, primarily, but, you know, swine and other animals too. And so, you know, viruses that are able to do this are, are the ones that are the major pandemic risk. And what you said, it went by maybe a little fast, but it's it's very interesting that when the original strain came out, it wasn't able to um, infect rodents, and then it mutated, and then it could infect rodents. And I think I can imagine how a rodent might get infected because we are living with some some rats in our basement right now. How does it jump back into humans? Well, I mean, yeah, we get exposed to rodent viruses too all the time. I actually, one of the main viruses I work on is a virus called Lassa virus in West Africa. And so uh, this is a virus of a rodent species we call Mastomys natalensis. It's kind of a, a, a rodent that's sort of between a mouse and a rat in size. It's more of a mouse. It's, it's pretty closely related to the mouse, but it's a big mouse. Uh, but it's what we call paradomestic. It lives in people's houses, comes in to eat food, just, just like the, the house mice and the rodents in, in the U.S. I mean, our houses are maybe built a little stronger and a little bit more rodent proof than the ones in some of the villages in Africa. But the virus spills over all the time from rodents to humans. Can you say more about specifically of how a rodent would spill over into a, if you into a human if it weren't a pet rodent or if you weren't well, touching well, or eating? To invade people's houses and they set up colonies. I mean, we we have a lot of rodents here in New Orleans. It's a temperate climate. It, the rodents, mice in particular, like it to be a little bit warmer. So, but how does the how does the virus then get from the colony to you know to you? Um, well, it would spread just like a human spreads the, the virus from another human. If it sets up a respiratory infection, then you know when the mice would breathe and you would breathe in that same air, or it could be from, you know, mice have, you know, they 
they excrete things, uh, you know, urine and feces and things. And so if you come into contact with that, trying to, uh, you know, either get rid of the rodents or put it in your eyes and the like and, uh, and get infected that way, it probably only had to happen one time. That is so I- incredible to imagine that maybe a mouse sneeze or a rat sneeze, I'm not trying to make light of it, but we share the same air. And if the particle is, they go airborne, you breathe that in. Yeah, they make little burrows and colonies. So there's dust and they kick it up when they move around. You hear them in, you know, when they're walking around in your wall sometimes, they're kicking up dust and things and the virus kicks it on, on that. And then you could breathe that in and also get infected that way. Does it matter where the variants originated, whether it was in one immunocompromised individual or in, in a rodent or in a, in a deer? You did not suggest a deer, just for the record. But does it matter? I mean, once you have the, the variant, what we're concerned with is now what its future spread is going to be and whether or not it's making people very sick. Is it important to know where the variants came from? Does that help us at all? I mean, it's really diff- going to be difficult to pin that down in most cases. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, like with some of the variants that they, they show up, uh, you know, I mean, the, the first cases of Delta, for example, were in India. Now, did the Delta variant arise in India? Probably, but, you know, I mean, actually, you know, saying, okay, this is the Indian variant and, you know, it's now spread worldwide and we have a worldwide pandemic of Delta, which is actually, you know, that's a true statement. Uh, It's not all that terribly helpful. You know, I mean, it could happen anywhere. That could happen in in Louisiana or or New York or Washington, D.C., wherever it could happen, you know, in the U.S. or in Europe or anywhere, you know, in terms of actually just saying, okay, it started there. That's not very helpful. I mean, looking at the virus, the mutation that it has, which changes it's made, that tells us a lot more about the potential of the virus for causing, you know, either increased pathogenesis, increased transmissibility, escape from our immune system, escape from vaccines. I mean, let's look at the, you know, what the virus has done. I, I think, you know, trying to say, okay, it came from this or that or whatever, is not really very helpful. Uh, Although, as I hear you explain this, it occurs to me that perhaps it does emphasize just how adaptive a virus is. And it's important to understand that it will keep circulating and jumping hosts as long as we allow it to. I mean, I, I guess there there is one point to make, though. I mean, and that's the vaccine equity, the distribution of the vaccines. I and mean, we have vaccines, we have boosters, we have more vaccines than people want to take, it seems, here in the United States and in other countries. But there are other countries around the world world where, you know, they don't have access to the vaccines, they they don't have distribution systems for the vaccine, even if we gave them the vaccine, or if even if they're able to get it, it's more difficult for them to deliver it. I think Nigeria had to destroy like a million doses of vaccine uh, a week or so ago, because they couldn't distribute it, they didn't have the infrastructure to do that. And, and so when you allow a virus like SARS-CoV-2, or, you know, any virus, basically, to just run rampant through the human population, you're going to see the mutations pick up. So it, it really, you know, we need to think this through better, because we're one planet, you know, we're one population of of human beings. And so any place that a virus like this, you know, gets loose and starts to spread, you can you can see what happens. It gets increasingly more adapted to people and better able to spread in us and cause disease. So let's get these vaccines distributed, I guess is what I'm saying here. The more we can dampen down the virus, the less chance it has to uh, to do these changes, these mutations.
Dr. Robert Gary, thank you so much for joining us to talk about mutations in variants and how to, how to slow down or even stop this virus. Thank you. My pleasure. Robert Gary is a professor of microbiology and a virologist at the Tulane School of Medicine in New Orleans. He's part of the team tracking and mapping the mutations of SARS-CoV-2. Now that we know a lot about the structure of coronavirus variants, can we use that knowledge to develop not just another vaccine, but the ultimate vaccine? The goal is that you would be protected against coronaviruses, those that are circulated in humans now, and then those that might be circulated in other species that could cross over to humans. Coming up, the challenge and the prospects of developing a universal defense against coronavirus and the flu. This episode of Big Picture Science is Attack of the Mutants. If you're able to be vaccinated and boosted, well, we hope you are. That and masking are among our best defenses to protect ourselves against Omicron. But we might be able to do better. Imagine doing away with double shots and boosters and giving your immune system a boost against all variants with a single shot. The appearance of the Omicron variant prompted scientists and vaccine manufacturers to assess current vaccines and discuss the possibility of tweaking them. But it also drew renewed attention to the ongoing effort to create a universal coronavirus vaccine. Exactly as it suggests, the vaccine would protect against all variants. Finally, something that can stop the attacking mutants. Kevin Saunders is the director of research for the Duke Human Vaccine Institute and a professor of surgery at Duke University, whose team is working toward that holy grail. He says that after years of work, the efforts to develop a universal flu vaccine are finally bearing fruit, and the work may show us the path for doing the same for coronavirus. But if we haven't yet made a vaccine for all types of influenza, why is it that we were able to make a vaccine for coronavirus so quickly? Well, Dr. Saunders says, we targeted the coronavirus in its early days before the variants appeared. The flu has had ages to mutate into many variants or strains. And so for influenza, there's many different strains of influenza, and those tended to circulate at different levels. And so it's hard to make one vaccine that's active against all those different forms of influenza. Whereas for the coronavirus, we were targeting one single sequence. And so that became a fairly easy target and so just using that one target, you can make one vaccine. And if the vaccine does its job, it can be highly effective. So that's why it was a simpler task in the beginning. And then over the last two years or so, we've seen all these different variants of interest and the variants of concern that are coming up. And they each pose a different challenge for the vaccine. And so that's, you know, you're starting to see now this evolving problem that once the virus starts to diversify itself, it becomes a relatively hard problem to, to solve with the vaccine. Well, I got my COVID shots. I also got my flu shots. I've gotten my booster. Now, I know that researchers are working, developing a universal flu vaccine, one that would be effective, you know, not just this year, but next year. I wouldn't have to go to the doctor again next year and against all the flu variants. 
And that sounds like you need to find something about influenza that is common to all the varieties of influenza. No matter what the strain, they would present the same target to the vaccine, right? So you're getting at the heart of the question of how do you develop something that's universal? So you can develop a vaccine that trains the immune system to see the most conserved sites. And so by seeing those conserved sites, it's able to recognize many different, say, flavors or different variants of the flu um, that might be circulating. But that can usually only take you so far, and there'll be certain ones that you miss. And so you have to not only target conserved sites, but you also have to expose the immune system to enough diversity so that it's able to recognize conserved sites on many different flu strains. Okay, now when you say conserved sites, you mean parts of the virus that, you know, are, are the same from generation to generation of the virus, right? It's a, it's a target, not a fleeting target, it's a kind of semi-permanent target. Correct, so if you took many different strains of the flu virus and you compare those either by sequence or by just how they look, you can find sites that are shared among those different sequences. And that's the target that you want the immune system to focus on. Now, when we talk about what the vaccines recognize about the coronavirus, it's the spike proteins, right? But are those protein molecules sort of unchanging? Right. So the the virus has on its surface what people call spike. And spike, in the context of coronavirus, is an actual protein. And so that's the part of the virus that attaches to this target cell. And if you can generate an immune response against it, you have the ability to try to block the virus from ever attaching to a cell. And so that's been the primary focus of most of the vaccines, to try to generate an immune response against it. It's actually the site on the virus that changes the most. And it changes the most because the virus is trying to escape from your immune response. I just wonder, does the influenza virus also have spike proteins? So spike is a general term that a lot of people use to refer to the protein that's on the surface of the virus. And so in the sense of coronavirus, it's actually the name used for that protein. So depending on how you're using it and which virus you mean, um, spike can actually be specific for that protein or it can just be a general term for that protein. Uh, if, if I had a, an electron microscopic photo of these viri, do they all have a family resemblance? I mean, if, if, if you lined up photos of these things, would they all look like, you know, little balls with, with things sticking out that they can use as hooks to grab onto my cells? Essentially, yes. So you would see um, a sphere in the middle, and then you would see different um, long protruding spikes that come off that surface. And in the case of influenza, there's the spike that comes off that's hemagglutinin. Um, there's also a second protein called neuraminidase that's on the, on the surface of it as well. Uh, you, you mentioned two kinds of proteins, one beginning with H, another beginning with N, and that makes me think of things like H1N1. I assume that's where the H's and the N's come from, right? That's exactly where they come from. Okay. All right. So it seems to me that the problem here when it comes to producing a universal vaccine is that you have a moving target. So you've designed a way to attack this protein, but that was two generations ago for the virus. To develop a universal vaccine, you said you look for conserved sites. Those are sites that are invariant or don't change. Have you identified those areas on the flu virus? Sure. So there's two main areas. So there's the area of the virus spike protein, which is called hemagglutinin, that attaches to cells. And so that precise site where the attachment occurs on, with the hemagglutinin protein, that site can be targeted by antibodies and can be well conserved. And so if you can get antibodies against that receptor binding site 
on that spike protein, then you have a chance of, of coming up with an antibody that could be effective against multiple um, strains of influenza. There's also another site towards the base of, of that spike protein that a lot of vaccines are trying to target, and that's called the stem of, of the hemagglutinin protein. And so you could target either one of those sites, depending on which type of vaccine approach you're going to take. It sounds like you know where the targets are for these flu viri. Why is it so hard then to, I mean, you know, this, this is a very naive question, but why is it so hard then to produce something that uh, will imitate them so that the body builds up immunity to them? Sure. So I think it's a matter of getting the immune system to focus on a site, and that's not a simple thing to do meaning that you um, can cover up the sites that are surrounding it that you don't want the, the immune system to focus on and then leave that site that you really care about accessible in hopes of trying to focus the antibodies to that, to that particular site. And so that's really where the current research is. And so I think those concepts are just being tested now to see how well they work. And now we're just really getting to the stages of really finding out if they're gonna be successful in humans. Okay, so you know they're they're beyond just being developed in the lab; they're being tested already. There are definitely plans to to test um, some of these vaccines um, in humans. Um, I think there's at least one safety trial that I know, or two safety trials that have gone forward with some of these novel concepts. You know, we've lost eight hundred thousand people to coronavirus in in the United States, but how many people die of you know influenza every year in the United States? Do, do you have an idea of how? How big a number? Somewhere around like 40,000 to 50,000 individuals are, are, are the, the typical numbers used, you know, as to who um, succumbs to influenza each year. And so it is still a, a deadly infection. And that's really, you know, the, the main emphasis for the, the vaccine development around it. Well, what about uh, COVID-2? I mean, right. I mean, coronaviruses, there are various kinds of coronaviruses beyond covid what we call COVID now, because any virus that kind of looks like a, a ball with a kind of a crown of thorns sticking out there, you know, we call it coronavirus. What, what other diseases are caused by coronaviruses? So there's currently um, four endemic coronaviruses that people get on a normal basis. And that just causes like a cold or what, you know, what we would call the common cold. And so those circulate in, you know, if you um, have a kid in daycare or um, have kids in school, they've probably at some point caught one of those because they cause about 30 to 40 percent of the, the common cold cases each year. And so those have been circulating. We've all seen those at some point. And so it's not until you actually get to some of these more deadly versions of the coronavirus, like SARS-CoV-1 or MERS-CoV or SARS-CoV-2, where we really become concerned about being infected with them. But for those other four, uh, we haven't really been that concerned about those because usually you can treat those and just treat the symptoms. Your body will uh, fight it off eventually and you recover and, and go back to normal. Is, is that why we still don't have a, if you will, a vaccine for the common cold? Because, you know, it doesn't get the kind of priority that something like COVID has gotten? Well, I think there's a few a few challenges to that. So for the common cold, only about 30% or so are caused by those four coronaviruses. The other 70% are caused by a whole bunch of other viruses. And so to really have a vaccine against the common cold, you have to be able to target a whole lot of different viruses. And so it's a very challenging thing to do. Um, if you're really gonna stop the common cold, um, you have to be able to target not just coronaviruses, but rhinoviruses, uh, adenoviruses, you know, all of these really broad virus families. Um, and that's a hard thing to, to develop one vaccine or one treatment that can work against all of those. Okay. Well, we've been talking about, you know, universal vaccines here. 
What about a universal vaccines for the coronavirus? I mean, is, is that in the offing? Or, or, or maybe we already have them. I, I don't know. It's, it's unclear whether these new variants like Omicron, you know, uh, are sort of immune to the vaccines we already have or not. So I think, so there's two parts to your question. So the first question is, you know, about the universal coronavirus vaccine. So the first thing is to make sure that it's clear what universal coronavirus vaccine means. To some people that means being able to stop SARS related viruses. So anything that's like SARS-CoV-2 that might come along, being able to stop those types of viruses. And I think there's been a lot of progress made against those. Um, we know a lot about the SARS-related viruses now, and we know that with some of the current vaccines that are being given, you generate immune responses against SARS-related viruses. And so there's good news there that if a, a future SARS-related virus comes along, we think that there would be some level of immunity just based on the vaccines that we currently have. Some people will say that a pan-coronavirus vaccine means being able to work against all of the variants of SARS-CoV-2 and maybe SARS-CoV-1. Um, but they don't mean that it also will work against MERS-CoV and then maybe some of the other viruses that circulate in animals. And so to the extent of universal, I think the field really uses it kind of in different ways. And so we've designed multiple different steps to this. So we have one where we're trying to cover, you know, alpha coronaviruses, beta coronaviruses, and gamma coronaviruses, um, delta coronaviruses. And then we have also pared that down some to where we're focused more on just beta coronaviruses. And those include SARS-CoV-1, MERS-CoV, and SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Well, I, I mean, that's clearly something that would be a boon. So the promise here, Kevin, is that at some point in the future, I go into my doctor, he gives me a shot against coronaviruses, maybe he gives me another shot against influenza viruses, and that's it. I don't have to come back the next year. I don't have to worry about a failure of the vaccine. Correct. That's the goal here. The goal is that you would be protected against coronaviruses, those that are circulated in humans now, and then those that might be circulated in other species that could cross over to humans. And that would be the same thing for influenza, to be protected against those that circulate now, as well as those that may spill over in the future. Kevin Saunders, thanks so very much for speaking with us. No problem. Kevin Saunders is director of research at the Duke Human Vaccine Institute and a professor of surgery at Duke University. His team is helping develop a universal vaccine for the flu. We're at that moment in the show, Seth, where I ask you, what is the big picture in this episode, Attack of the Mutants? Yeah, well, for me, the big picture is how, you know, brute force can overwhelm an intelligent plan. I mean, these viruses don't do well on their SATs, and yet they can evade our body's defenses. Even with vaccines, they can win. It's really astounding. And what we learned is that we are watching evolution in real time. Of course, evolution is happening around us all the time at different timescales. But with viruses, with the evolution of viruses, you can actually observe the consequences of their rapidly mutating genomes. We're certainly feeling the effects of that. Yeah, it's true. And of course, that's something new. Uh, you know, I, you have to admire Charles Darwin for uh, seeing the effects of mutation, you know, over the course of a few millions of years on the Galapagos Island. What we can see with the viruses, because we can sequence them, we can see how quickly they may mutate, and we can also see what the mutations actually are. And what we learned in this show is when it comes to those mutations, it's all about location, location, location. So the high number of mutations on the Omicron variant is one of the reasons why this variant is replicating so 
quickly. And it's not just that it has so many mutations, and it's not just that it has many mutations on its spike protein. It is specifically where those mutations are on that spike protein. And one of them is on this site called the furin cleavage site that we learned allows the virus to actually get into the cell more easily. So it all comes down to those specific mutations, not just any mutations, but specific ones. Really, it's humanity that's the big petri dish here, because you've got billions of people, you know, containing probably easily trillions of viruses, probably six orders of magnitude more than that. And they're all doing this ongoing experiment, as you note, uh, to uh, breed new variants that can just escape our, our defenses. It's, but it's, it's interesting really a, It's interesting that you said it's humanity doing this because really what we learned is it's not just humanity. It's all these different species. I mean, I was shocked to learn that the Omicron variant may have arisen in a rodent and then jumped back into us. So this coronavirus is described as a pantropic virus, which actually means it can infect all different kinds of tissue. It is jumping around back and forth. And so if we as humans, if we don't try to stop this, the virus is going to find a host in another species. We were talking about the promise of a universal coronavirus vaccine and the promise of a universal flu vaccine. What are the encouraging final notes on that front, Seth, so we can so we can end this with a, a bit of a high note? Okay. I, I, I like your optimism, Molly. Well, my, my takeaway here is that this is a very tough problem. But the people who are doing this have a strategy that sounds eminently reasonable. They're making progress. And, you know, a universal vaccine, whether it's a, for coronavirus or the flu or any other viral infection, I mean, it, it's, it's not something that's 50 years in the future. You know, there's kind of zeroing in on this. I'm going to sleep better at night. This show is made possible thanks to the highly adaptive talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study, among other things, the origin and evolution of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Chasek. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the role of mutation in producing coronavirus variants, such as Omicron, and how we might stop them, is called Attack of the Mutants. 